The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Is this on? Great. Great. Wonderful. So speaking of the Sati Center, there's going to be a wonderful day long this Saturday with Rita Gross, as she just announced. And um, it's a real opportunity if you're uh, at all interested. She's a, a really nationally known scholar on Vajrayana Buddhism, or sort of in the Tibetan tradition. So it should be interesting. And then the following week, there's going to be another fascinating um, uh, day long in the afternoon on Sunday uh, with Steve Armstrong, and he's going to be doing uh, an afternoon on uh, Buddhist personality types, uh, which should be very interesting. Yeah, and Steve is a great guy, very, very uh, lively and provocative, to say the very least. So if you're interested, I would encourage you to come and see that. Also, thanks for the announcement about the, the Burmese exhibit. Um, having lived in Burma, I can tell you that the, the art is something to behold. So if you get a chance to go up and see it, I didn't even know it was there, so I'm going to make a point of going and seeing it myself. So good morning. It's really nice to be here with all of you. There's a lot of you here for a Tuesday morning. <laughs> it's, nice, it's nice to have you all here. So I'm going to be doing a four-part series, and uh, this is the first of the, of the uh, four talks that I'm going to give. And this talk um, is titled Meditation, the Path to Freedom. So I, I think it could be more accurately titled uh, Meditation as a Part of the path to freedom. So in this talk, I want to give a sort of an overarching um, idea of uh, how meditation fits into this path and um, what, what the path actually is. And then maybe we can talk a little bit more and uh, drill down into um, just the actual process of meditating and what meditation is and why we meditate and, you know, um, are there different ways to meditate? Is there a right way to meditate, a wrong way to meditate? Um, and see what we all think. So <clears throat> in terms of uh, the overarching uh, aspects of this, uh, what I want to say to, to to actually start the talk is that the path is actually, what I mean by path here is the Buddha's noble eightfold path. So it's, for those of you who might not be familiar with it, it's right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness and right concentration. And it's generally broken into sort of three categories called sila, samadhi, and panya. Sila is the cultivation of, uh, uh, of ethical, virtuous qualities. And that would be found in sort of the middle section of the path, which is right speech, right action, and right livelihood. 
and uh, samadhi would be the meditation piece of the path, which we're going to focus on a little bit more, and that would be the right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And then the perspective and aims of the path are found in right view and right intention. So um, this is what I'm, I'm referring to when I'm talking about the path. And then in terms of meditation, we can think of meditation as having uh, both immediate and directly, um, uh, or an immediate and direct or short-term goal, and then having a longer-term goal. And the short-term goal of meditation is to calm and steady the mind, to quiet the mind down, to slow, to slow the mind down enough so that it's stable enough to actually gain access to the kinds of insights that help us deal with the issues that are part of our lives, our everyday lives, whether those are issues of identity and relationship or pleasure and pain or wanting and not wanting and resisting and all of those kinds of issues that are part of each of our lives. Um, those are the sh that's the short-term goal of meditation, to quiet ourselves down, to stabilize the mind enough so that we can see how to live skillfully. The longer-term goal is actually contained and summarized in this Noble Eightfold Path that I just referred to. And it contains these, these three, three sections. And the path, is, um, the path is both uh, a way out of what causes us to suffer in our individual lives, it shows us, it gives us a means by which we can um, uh, find a way to, to deal with the, the things that distress us in our personal lives. And then it also gives us a way to manifest and express these more enlightened qualities in the world and give it to the world so that we can really become change agents in the world in which we live. And when we are able to uh, realize and integrate the sort of the fruits of this practice, then we basically um, are able to awaken to a sense of freedom. So, so <clears throat> the path... Um, let me just say that for any path to be a path, there has to be a place that we start and a place that we end, or a beginning and an ending. That's what makes a path a path. So <clears throat> there's inherent in this, even this concept of path, a sense of direction. So... Uh, it said that the Buddha focused his teaching on the path, on this path, not so much on the ending of the path. He didn't really talk an awful lot about what the ultimate end of the path was. 
Nibbana. I mean, he gave teachings on Nibbana, but he didn't focus on, 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 on that aspect of it, which is, hard, which is maybe impossible to describe with words. His teaching focused more on how, how we travel the path to get to the end of the path. So what the Buddha gave us um, that was so unique was this, um, these teachings on the Four Noble Truths. So again, I don't know, uh, maybe there are people who are new to meditation in this room, I'm, I'm not sure, are new to these, to these kinds of teachings. But the Four Noble Truths are that in our lives, among other things, there is suffering, there is distress, there is disease. And this suffering he called dukkha. And so dukkha could be described as anything from minor irritations and annoyances and just not getting things that we want or uh, you know, not getting our way to major catastrophic um, basically heartbreaking anguish. So it's the whole range of the way we suffer as human beings. This is what we consider, or this is what is considered to be dukkha. So that's the first noble truth that the Buddha gave us. He noticed that this is present in all of our lives. And as human beings, this is what, this is, something that connects us all. So each of you have stories and, and things that trigger this sense of dukkha in you that's maybe unique to your life or to your personality or whatever. But the experience of dukkha is something that each one of us knows. Each one of us, when, when one of us talks about it, the, our ability to understand this suffering in another person, this empathetic connection that we have with one another, is what I'm referring to. And this is part of our common human experience. The second noble truth is that there's an origination to suffering. So <clears throat> there's, the, there's a cause of suffering. And, and simply stated, the cause of suffering is our attachment to wanting things to be a certain way, a craving and a clinging quality that we have. So this is the, the causes of suffering. And then the third noble truth is that if we abandon the origination of suffering, the craving and the clinging of dukkha, we actually can come to the end of suffering and stress. So there's a cessation, there's a ceasing, an ending of suffering. So <laughs> the path is, can, can end. And then the fourth noble truth is that the path or the direction to the abandoning of the root causes of our suffering is found in this noble eightfold path. So there's a way to come to the end of suffering. So there's suffering, there's the cause of suffering, there's the end of suffering, and there's the way 
to the end of suffering. And these are the Four Noble Truths that the Buddha um, offered to us. So <clears throat> when we look at it in that way, we can really get um, sort of a sense of direction and a sense of path, a sense of what the Buddha offered us as a teaching. And um, we can see that this idea of path is clearly embedded in these teachings that he gave us. Okay, so we've got this path. Great. But in order to follow the path, it requires a lot of work. It requires patience. It requires flexibility. It requires consummate kindness. And these truths aren't always very obvious to us. So it's one thing to read about this path and these noble truths, and it's another thing to actually begin to, to realize them in a direct and a useful way in our personal life experiences. So <clears throat> one of the things that's really up for me in my personal practice and that I've given a number of talks on is that um, we don't often see and recognize what causes suffering in our lives. We just don't see it. And we confuse the causes of what's making us suffer or, or producing suffering in our life with that which triggers the suffering. So when I say that which triggers the suffering, it's the stories, the details of our individual triggers, you see? And so the cause of suffering, if, if I could describe it in this way, is more, it's not so much he said, she said, or this happened or that didn't happen. It's the resistance to being with what comes up by the trigger of he said, she said. So it's that place of contraction and contention within us that we turn away from, that we're aversive to, that we're blind to. And so <clears throat> we, we find ourselves in cycles of, of suffering, of repeating the same things over and over and over again, coming in different packages, maybe different triggers, but that place inside that we turn away from habitually turn away from <clears throat> is, is the actual gateway to freedom, if we could only recognize that. So we commonly turn away from, from feelings that are unpleasant, this Vedana of like, say, irritability or edginess. And we are habituated to look for 
distractions, look for ways not to feel this way, not to feel the unpleasantness of the edginess or the contention that we're, we're contacting inside of ourselves. And uh, <clears throat> that, that edginess, if, if we could look at it, we could see judgments. We're like actively judging quickly. We don't even realize we're doing it. And we're, we're, we're sort of defaulting to aversion and ill will. And this has a momentum in our lives. And every time we, we encounter uh, something that triggers us, and we turn away from it in this sort of habitual way. It's as though we're, we're building a muscle. It's as though we're exercising this. So um, let me put it in a, in, a, in a very simple way. If we had an issue uh, with anger, let's say that we... Um, uh, let's say that we we fly off the handle easily, you see? So every time something happens to trigger us and we default to flying off the handle, it's like it becomes easier and easier and easier to fly off the handle. This is what we're familiar with. This is what we go to first. And this is what we begin to think of as normal. However, when we slow down enough, when we begin to meditate, when we can see things clearly with a little bit more stability of mind, we can see that anger is arising in us. We, can, we, we get the signs that anger is arising. We've got this knot in our stomach. Or we, we feel, you know, heat, <laughs> the heat... Uh, elevate in our, in, in our body. We, we get the signs that anger is coming. And then there's a knowing of anger. And so we begin to see that we have a choice of whether we're going to fly off the handle or we're not going to fly off the handle. We can allow the presence of anger to flow through us in a natural way without necessarily expressing it and projecting it onto other people. So there's a real difference between being lost in anger and not knowing what's going on and knowing that anger has arisen. Anger is completely natural. Everybody experiences anger if you're a human being. We all, we all do. But some of us actually get lost in it. You see? So when you're meditating or when we're trying to meditate, and when we're trying to follow the breath, for instance, you get an instruction, follow, follow the in and out breath, and count the breath, and you know, be with the bodily sensations that tell you that there's breath in your body, and, and so on, and it all sounds fine, and then the mind wanders off, because that's what minds do. They, they think, and they wander, and they do that sort of thing. It's completely different if you're lost in thought, 
than if there's an awareness that thinking is now happening. You see? The awareness that thinking is now happening is clear mindfulness. So you don't have to stop thinking or judge yourself harshly for thinking. You simply (laughs) know that thinking is happening. And when you do, if the object of your meditation is your breath, in a way, when you become aware that thinking is happening, you have remembered the object of your meditation and you can return to to the breath. So... When irritability or edginess comes up and we begin to default to this habitual way of looking for ways to get away from it, to distract ourselves or something, it's not that we have to, to resist this feeling of edginess or, or whatever. We simply have to... Um, we, we simply begin to see what's happening. And we begin to see that aversion is, the aversion to this state is taking over. You see? And we begin to, then we begin to see the, the judgments that are happening at sort of lightning speed. And we begin to see the ways that we trip ourselves up and that we get caught and these cycles of doing the same thing over and over and over again. And <clears throat> what I mentioned earlier is something that I, I see in my own life, in my own practice. It's like every time I go there, it's like I'm building this muscle. Every time I go there and every time I can see that there's another way I interrupt the momentum of that cycle. I interrupt the force of that negativity that propels me along in, in the river of my life. So we can react to disappointments and frustrations and our hurt feelings by losing it or projecting blame or anger outside onto other people. We can become depressed by this. But I would ask you, is there anybody in this room who's never felt irritable, who's never felt impatient, who's never felt frustrated, who's never felt fill-in-the-blank? You know, these are all perfectly natural parts of the human experience. We all feel this, you see. And so <clears throat> the problem isn't found in what I would call the symptoms of the problem. The problem, the core of the problem isn't found in our triggers, in our stories. The core of the problem is found in the reactivity and the resistance to what's going on in our hearts and our minds. You see, we're totally rejecting our experience. And um, sometimes this confuses people when I say it, but uh, I'm going to say it anyway, on the chance that it's not going to confuse you. I would say that 
this is how we abandon ourselves. When we reject our experience, or some part of our experience, we actually fragment ourselves and we, we are abandoning ourselves. So there's a, there's a sense of not being willing to accept the wholeness of what it means to be a human being. So we only want things to be nice. We don't want to be with things that aren't nice, that don't feel nice to us, that don't feel, you see. And it's perfectly natural. Who wants to be with things that don't feel nice? Okay. Are you with me so far? Okay, good. So the Buddha offers us... um, a remedy to uproot these afflictive mind states and behaviors, which are basically this reactivity and resistance that we have in our hearts. And and the not knowing and the ignorance out of which this originates, this to be sort of at, at the root of things, it's like we're sort of sleepwalking through life in a way. So there's this, this unknowing, this not knowing that, that happens. And so when we begin to meditate, we see very clearly that things are going on that we're just not normally aware of. We don't have the clarity of mind or we can't, we can't get through that which we use to filter our experience to get to the, to the core of what's happening. So the ignorance are not knowing of what keeps us attached um, to fighting with resisting the way things are. It's, it's ignorance, uh, what I'm trying to say. It's ignorance and, and not knowing that keeps us hooked to this. And basically... The problem is that we want things to be different than they actually are. So, so we want our experience to map precisely to our desires and our expectations about the way we think things should be. We don't want things to be different than the way we want them to be. We want them to be the way we want them to be normally. So... <clears throat> What this does is it keeps us, in a way, wanting to hold on to things that we can't hold on to, wanting things to be permanent and stable and safe and predictable so that we can be comfortable. But life is not permanent and stable and <laughs> safe and predictable. It's unpredictable and and dynamic, and it changes in the blink of an eye. And when we want it to be the way we want it to be, we're going to suffer. So, so this not seeing clearly what's going on keeps us in this habit of of turning away from that which causes us problems and also... Um, uh, keeps us 
you know, doing the kinds of things that are counter to the truth that's revealed when we meditate. And when I'm saying holding on to things that we can't hold on to, what I'm referring to in terms of, of Buddhist teaching is that um, there's this concept of anicca or impermanence, that everything that arises abides for a while and then it passes away. And when we reject the truth of impermanence, we actually crave and cling, for thing, cling to things that are going to cause us to suffer. So this points us back to the second noble truth, that there's an origination and a cause of suffering. And this ignorance or lack of clear comprehension is actually the origination of all dukkha, of all suffering, stress, dissatisfaction, frustration, anger, irritability, pettiness, mean-spiritedness, disappointment, belief in lack, and so on and so on. This is the actual origination of it. And, and the Buddha gives us the remedy. The remedy that he gives us is the noble eightfold path, and it's the, the actual remedy is for us to cultivate the noble eightfold path. So all of these teachings have to be cultivated. If we don't engage them, they're just ineffective. They don't, they don't change our lives. We have to actually participate and engage them, which is the work of the Noble Eightfold Path, which is what requires kindness, compassion, patience, and so on and so forth. So, <clears throat> as we begin to look at how to cultivate the path, we discover that, <clears throat> that there are <clears throat> things that obscure us from uh, the natural brightness of our mind. And these, these things, <laughs> I don't know, know what you call them, these are, are defilements. They're called kalesas. And basically, the kalesa that is called a defilement because it defiles our ability to have a clear seeing of the natural state of the mind, you see? So <clears throat> uh, I practiced in, in Asia for some time, and uh, uh, I was in a monastery where uh, the teacher taught a kind of meditation to quiet the mind down uh, and become deeply concentrated. And so uh, people would try, I would try oh, to force myself to be concentrated and to follow the breath and so on and so forth. And, and uh, it took a long time and a lot of suffering before I realized that 
the natural state of the mind was to be concentrated and that all my efforts to make myself concentrated were in fact doing the opposite. They were just tying me up in a knot. And I didn't see the wanting, the desiring for, you know, states and so on. I didn't see any of that because I was so caught up and, and thinking that I was doing the practice I had to sort of suffer my way through this to get to this realization that concentration is the natural, is, an, is part of the natural experience of the mind. Just like compassion, I teach a compassion program, and compassion is the heart's natural response to suffering. You don't have to do anything to make yourself compassionate. When you recognize suffering, truly recognize it, truly see it with clear comprehension, and don't turn away from it the way that I'm mentioning we do, or the way I mentioned we do, the heart's natural response is, is to, to be compassionate. And it's a very beautiful quality because when one experiences this feeling of compassion through the wisdom door, through the clear seeing of suffering, then one can sometimes have the experience of release or relief. Often it'll feel like relief, but it will sometimes feel like release. It's like we're released from the wrong view of rejecting the truth of what's happening, which is suffering in this case. So these defilements actually obscure and and cover up the natural brightness of our mind. And so what are a few examples of kalesas? So kalesas could show up in our experience as things like jealousy, impatience, Uh, wanting or needing or insisting that things be exactly the way that we want them to be in order for us to be happy. We tie our happiness to things being the way we want them to be rather than the way they are. So the good news is that we can turn around these habitual ways of reacting and we can uh, reframe or amend Um, our attitudes and behaviors uh, by cultivating new habits which allow us to recognize and rest in a place of clear seeing within us. So when, that's a long-winded way of saying, when we're impatient or when we're envious or when we're jealous, if we can recognize that jealousy and impatience and um, envy has arisen, we can, instead of judging ourselves for it, we can reframe that experience in a way that helps us to be in sync with the truth of the presence of that arising. That isn't who we are. We don't have to identify with it. We don't have to express it. We don't have to manifest it. We don't have to project jealousy out. We can simply recognize that this natural quality, 
this natural part of being a human being, has arisen, we can allow it to, to just be what it is and flow through us rather than to grab onto it, cling, it, cling onto it, hold it like a trauma in our body or in our psychology. And um, this is a way of being kind to ourselves. This is a way of self-mentoring. So we, we could say in a situation like that, wow, jealousy is here again. This really hurts, you know? I don't want to be jealous. I don't like being jealous. But the fact is that jealousy has arisen. So there's jealousy and there's not wanting to be jealous. And, and does it help to beat yourself up with self-judgments? You just realize all of this is going on. This is what's happening now. At this moment, this is what's happening. And if you can be with what is happening, in a way, this is an act of self-compassion. And in a way, this is an act of self-compassion. Every time you can be with the truth of what's actually happening, especially if it's difficult, if it's a difficult truth, you, you are touching a place of self-compassion. And then instead of exercising the mu- muscle of just reacting to jealousy and envy, you're exercising this muscle that allows you to reframe this experience and to mentor yourself with kindness and self-care. Does that make sense? Do you relate to that? Yes, good. So, so when we do this, um, it diminishes the, the confusion and distress that we feel in our lives in a normal way, And it begins to give us confidence and skills to cultivate, um, uh, basically to cultivate our meditation. You see? So we have, now I'm I'm turning it back to meditation here. So, So instead of fighting with our experience, whether it's an experience that comes up in our daily life, or whether it comes up when we're sitting on the cushion. In a way, there should be (laughs) no difference, because if what happens on the cushion has no relevance in our daily life, then it's useless. And if what happens in our daily life we can't understand on the cushion, then, then something's going amiss here for us. So the first objective of our meditation is to see and understand what's going on so that we can free the mind. And even if we can free the mind for just short periods of time, this is a gift. And what are we freeing the mind of? We're freeing the mind of the common, of common distractions. There's actually five of them, and I'm sure that everyone in this room is familiar with these. These are disturbances that hinder the mind. They're called the hindrances. And they actually get in the way of our enjoyment of being in the natural state of the mind, to be with, um, if I can be sort of outrageous, I'm going to call it pure awareness. 
you know, uh, this, is, uh, this is our right as, as human beings. We should be able to, to contact that and rest there. And, and, and we can with, with um, training and with determination. But um, these, these mental hindrances arise for us. And these hindrances are, I'll just review them, their uh, desire or wanting or coveting things, um, their ill will and aversion. There's this quality of dullness and lethargy, a kind of going unconscious, a sleepwalking through our lives. There's this, the fourth one is worry and remorse or uh, restlessness, this distraction of the mind that's so known to everyone. It's very, it can feel like agitation. And then the fifth one is doubt, which is the real crusher. So it's said that these hindrances um, abate in direct proportion to the arising and cultivating of spiritual qualities that eradicate them. So, so, uh, and, and when we practice this, it has the effect of uh, brightening and stabilizing our awareness. So when we begin to meditate and we calm the mind down and, and create a kind of stability of mind, we, we uh, bring a kind of steadiness and agility and uh, we have access to insight and we experience peace in our lives. We experience a calmness that happens. And, <clears throat> and to take it a step further, when we, when we uh, cultivate this deeply, it it can lead to these deep states of mental unification known as absorption or jhanas. And, um, and that's a, a, a subject for another talk. <clears throat> but without cultivating the nece- necessary spiritual qualities or factors to eradicate the hindrances to deal with these things that obscure our ability to sort of enjoy our natural, pure awareness. Uh, We generally don't recognize the deeply held biases that are in our minds. So we all have sort of unexamined biases, which uh, we live with on a daily basis, on a day-to-day basis, and they're so common, they're so much a part of our experience that we just assume that this is what it's like for everyone, or this is what it's like to be in the world. We just assume that things are the way they are based on these biases that... um, basically cause us to suffer and they disconnect us with the truth of the way things really are. And so these biases um, actually influence the way the mind understands and relates to our experience. So 
we could understand these biases, we could look at these biases in a kind of an overarching way and say that, that um, we have this kind of uh, insatiable need for sensory stimulation where we have to be uh, stimulated in a sensory way. It's, it's just part of what we crave. And we also have this craving for um, being or becoming something or someone. So, so if you stop and think for a moment about just the way that you operate, um, the plans that we make, the way that we remember the past, it's always about being or becoming something. And so we have these stories that we're running in our minds, to put it in a very simple way. And who's the star of our stories? Hmm? Aren't we? We're at the center of, our, of each one of our stories, you see. And so there's this narrative that goes on that's, that's, that's deeply self-referential. And <clears throat> this is just part of, of the bias that, that we are living with. And then the third major one here is that we simply miss the boat and we languish for years or lifetimes, if you buy into the notion of lifetimes or rebirth, in this not knowing and this ignorance, this sleepwalking our, our way through our life experiences. And these biases, these mental biases, are sometimes called uh, influxes. When you, yeah, they're sometimes called influxes because they, they, f- they actually flow in the way that the mind works. And um, they, they become a starting point for suffering. And they, as I said earlier, they influence and... In, in, um, the way that we understand and relate to our experiences. And so, um, <clears throat> and so uh, <clears throat> when we train in meditation, uh, we can begin to uh, support and awaken our, enliven, I should say, um, our ability and our capacity to to sort of move with the ebb and flow of our experience and not be distracted by it or run away from it. And when we do that, we begin to cultivate um, factors of awakening. And this is, I'll I'll tell you what the factors are, but you could give a a whole talk or you could spend a whole lifetime um, looking at this kind of thing. But these factors of awakening are, there's seven factors and, and they are in this order, mindfulness, investigation, energy, rapture or up, uplift, calmness and tranquility, concentration and equanimity. And these spiritual factors remove the hindrances that obscure us from being with pure awareness, and they lead us to freedom. 
And this is all part of the path. So the not knowing or ignorance that I mentioned earlier um, can be understood as the absence and the obscuration of pure and unbiased awareness. To be able to see things as they really are clearly without our filters of things needing to be the way we want them to be or the way we prefer them to be. This allows us a direct knowing, a, you know, a direct experience of, of, of knowing. And um, without this direct knowing, we are blocked from natural and beautiful qualities, qualities like compassion and empathy and self-respect, and, and the safety and wholesomeness of being able to tr- trust. You see? This is, these are natural and beautiful qualities, but um, when we're operating through multiple layers of filters because we want things to be nice and we don't want things to be <laughs> unpleasant, we actually block ourselves. So... I go back to the example of me sitting in a Burmese jungle, forcing myself to concentrate or thinking that I could make myself concentrate and just getting in my own way. You see, I had to suffer through all of that to realize in the end, just relax and receive it. It's all right there. So this is an example of how we can abandon ourselves in false and unexamined assumptions about things being a certain way. You see, so much of our life is influenced and directed by us defaulting to our biases, defaulting to assumptions that things are a certain way. We just assume that because we think that, This is the way they are. And we, I mean, if we stop and think about it, it becomes obvious that maybe that's not the case. But it's so much a part of the way that we operate that we just default there. And so this is a default mode of operation, so to speak. And so we have to learn how to recognize that and not reject that that's happening just to recognize that and then begin to reframe our experience. Like, maybe this is an assumption. See? Maybe this is an assumption. So I'll give you, I'll give you a quick example. I was teaching a, uh, the compassion program that I teach, and I was teaching it here uh, through Sati Center. And a woman raised her hand, and she said, Mick, you might have been in the class that day. She said, I'm an attorney, and my job is to win. And I would really like to be more compassionate. But I'm afraid if I'm compassionate, the opposing uh, attorney will think I'm unprepared and will chew me up and spit me out, and I won't be serving the best interest of my clients. So what should I do? I want to be more compassionate. 
And I thought, she's asking me. <laughs> and so I, I actually, I didn't answer the question. I just, or I answered the question with another question. I asked her if there might be some assumptions about what compassion is that she wasn't looking at. You see? In this case, the assumption would be that in, if you're compassionate, it means that you capitulate and you just let the other person do whatever they want to do. That compassion means that you have to be nice. And nice means that you have to abandon your, your values and your integrity and your boundaries. And this is an absolutely false assumption about what compassion is. And so this is an example of how something as simple as that and as practical as that leads to deep insights into the way that we are in the world. This is how meditation is part of this path that leads to freedom. And so our work is to really recognize and uproot the ignorance and not knowing that distorts our, our access to clear comprehension. Both <clears throat> in the way that we live our daily lives and in the way that we engage our meditation. So <clears throat> by training in meditation, by training in mindfulness, we can begin to release the effects of these influxes, this, this dogged need to be stimulated and to become and to be important and to be the center of things, and then to just flake out. We can actually begin to release the effects of these things. And... Um, Slowly, slowly, if we're patient and we commit ourselves, we begin to feel the effects of freedom. We can begin to feel the territory of freedom, even if it comes only in moments of release. So when I talked about having an experience of self-compassion through the direct seeing of suffering... That's a moment of release. You see, it does, that moment doesn't last forever. Nothing does. But that moment of release brings you into the territory of what it's like not to be in a state of, of guarded contention and contraction all the time, not to be hindered, not to be obscured from the awareness of, of, from what it's like to enjoy pure awareness, let me put it that way. So <clears throat> this is basically how meditation, this is some of the ways that meditation, or a few of the ways that meditation is the means by which we walk this path to freedom. It's, it's, part of the path and it's the means by which we, we basically begin the path 
and take ourselves to the end of the path. It's not the ultimate end. Once we get to the end, we can... We don't need to meditate, or so they've told us. I don't, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not there yet. But uh, uh, although it's a part of the path, it's my personal belief that without meditation, <clears throat> you can't really walk the path. You need meditation to discipline the mind, to quiet the mind down enough so that you can have access to the kinds of insights that allow you to develop these skills. So, <clears throat> so my wish for all of you is to uh, meditate your way from the beginning of the path to the end of the path and to, um, to get the taste and flavor of freedom and to uh, share that with everyone that you come in contact with. So those are my thoughts for the, this morning, and I'm a few minutes over, so I apologize. So I hope it's been a useful talk for you. Thank you so much.